you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be one in a pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, I'll give you a shortcut to find our passage in that pew Bible. It's going to be on page 1007. And so there you'll, you'll be in the book of Romans. You'll see a, a large black number, 13. That's the chapter number. And then there's some smaller numbers after that, and we're going to start in verse 8. So Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Uh, the passage asks a pointed question of the church. It's a seemingly simple question on the surface, but it is profound in the answer. And, and the question is this, how should God's people engage those who are outside the faith? What should our posture be? What should our relationship be to those who are not believers? In every conceivable way we can think of being a non-believer, uh, from just the, the nominal neighbor to uh, the active enemy of the faith, how should Christians relate to those who are outside the faith. It seems simple, but it's a challenging question because of the increasing number of opinions that are selling books and producing podcasts. And in a cultural moment full of so much division and so many problems, there's a sense that this time is unprecedented, therefore the church must respond in ways that are equally unprecedented. But Paul has an answer for this question, and his answer to the early church and to the modern church is that we are to engage the world around us with the common, ordinary tools of love and righteousness. And all God's people said, lame, so boring, more love, more, we talk about this all the time, shouldn't we do something different? Hey, you need what Paul has to say today in Romans chapter 13. Because it's vital for us that if, if we are going to live where we live and bear the name that we bear, that we do so in a way that is pleasing to our God. Now, in our study of Romans so far, the first 11 chapters are, are this big explanation of the gospel. He explains uh, why we need to be saved, how salvation works, how it doesn't work. It's 11 chapters of this thick explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then starting in chapter 12, which we began just a few weeks ago, there's this profound shift in subject matter. He goes from explaining what salvation is to explaining what the salvation life looks like. He's told us how the gospel works. Now he's telling us how it's lived in our lives. And so starting in chapter 12, what Paul does is he begins to apply the gospel to various relationships in the believer's life. I don't know if you've seen that as we've been walking through Romans 12 and 13 so far, but he begins in chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 with our relationship to God. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then in verses 3 through 16, he addresses our relationship with other believers. We're to love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. After that, verses 17 to 21, he addresses our relationships with enemies of the faith. 
He says, do not repay evil for evil. Bless those who persecute you. Last week, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, he addresses our relationship to the government. We are to submit to our governing authorities and pay our taxes. And today, chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, he addresses our relationships to those who are outside the faith. Here at the end of chapter 13, he wraps up his discussion on this holy trinity of outsiders, enemies of the faith, the government, and non-believing society. Paul's instructions so far from Romans 12 to now have been shocking to say the least. To not repay evil for evil and to submit to governing authorities when those authorities are totally corrupt sounds counterintuitive, which is precisely why you and I need transformed minds. Our ways of thinking are not God's ways of thinking. So it should come as no surprise to us that, that Paul has more shocking instructions regarding our relationship with those outside the faith. He could tell us to retreat entirely. He could tell us to go on the attack, but instead he tells us to love them and to live as if today is the last day. How important is it for us as a church to learn this lesson from Paul considering our cultural moment. You could make the argument that what Paul has to say here is generally good and true, but ultimately irrelevant because where we are today and what we're experiencing now requires something stronger than just love and ethical Christ-like living. That's too soft of a response. We need more aggressive ways of responding to the cultural moment. So this passage might be well suited for peacetime living, but we're in war. The church that Paul wrote these words to was experiencing active and increasing persecution. They had no constitutionally protected rights. They had no Supreme Court representation. They had no pending elections. They had no representatives in government. They were maligned by government authorities and religious authorities alike. And yet, because they chose to love like Christ and live like Christ, the gospel spread all around the Mediterranean Sea, ultimately landing right here on the South Shore. So, we can't come to this passage and say, this is idealistic and it won't work because it is precisely the very reason why if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because those who have come before us responded to the non-believing world around them with love and a Christ-like righteousness. Do you want to make a difference? You look at the world around you. Do, do you want to impact lives? Do you want to see changes in the world and culture around us? Well, this passage shows us the way. And this way of living is ordinary in its approach, but it is radical in its results. And so my goal today is to compel you to live as an ordinary radical among those who do not believe as you do. And Paul focuses us on two ways of living among those who are outside the faith. Follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 8. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments 
do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. How should Christian people live among non-Christians so that we bring about real lasting life transformation? Paul gives us two ways to live. The first way we are to live among a non-believing culture is love your neighbor. Oh, Cody, did you come up with that on your own? That's so creative and novel. Never heard that before. You went to preacher school to learn how to say, hey, I don't appreciate the tone or the sass. You're fired up today. Look, just button it up. And I know you've heard this before, and there's a reason it keeps coming up, because my heart forgets and your heart forgets, and our God is so gracious that he will give us the message we need until we believe it. So we've got to love our neighbors as ourselves. In the previous passage, at, at the end of that section of chapter 13 where Paul's talked about the government, Paul just finished telling us to pay what we owe to those who we owe things. So in verse 7, he says, pay taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, honor to those you owe honor. And then here in verse 8, he says, do not owe anyone anything. So pay all your debts, those that are financial and those that are honorific. However, there is one debt you will never pay in full. It's the debt you are paying continually, but you are never completing, and that is the debt of love. God's people must pay everyone the love they are owed, the love the cross requires of us, and we'll never be free of that wonderful debt. Now, my take this morning is that this passage we're studying is all about our relationship, the Christian's relationship to the, our non-believing society. And the reason I land there is because of this line at the beginning of verse 8, don't owe anyone anything. He, he has his eyes set on the outside world. And so when he tells us to love our neighbor, I, I take Paul to be pointing to those outside the church. Must we love people inside the church? Absolutely. He's already told us that in chapter 12. He's bringing us back to that in chapter 14, whether you like it or not. So yes, this has applications for life inside the church family. But I think Paul's primary target is the non-believing world. And so in verse 8, he tells us that the one who loves this other person has fulfilled the law of God. That's a really interesting language because we don't often equate law and love. We, we don't join them together. We keep them separate, law being very negative and love being very positive. 
But Paul teaches us here that love is actually expressed in one way through obedience to the law. So when I don't lie, when I don't break my marriage vows, when I don't covet what my neighbor has, when I don't commit murder, when I don't do those sinful things, I'm acting in love. And so love is not just an an affection of the heart, it, it is action in my life. And obedience to the law of God is an expression of my love for my neighbor. Love requires an objective moral standard that comes from God in order to be properly expressed among the people we live with. So many people believe that love eradicates law, but the Bible shows us, and even just this morning has told us, that love is not the end of the law, love is the fulfillment of the law. John Stott said of this verse, Love and law need each other. Love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. So we're to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Well, Jesus answered this for us, didn't he? In Luke chapter 10, we find a story about an unidentified man who was beaten by thieves and left for dead on the side of the road. A priest came by, surely he will help, and he does not. A Levite walks by, surely he will help. This man of God, he does not. He walks past. But a man from Samaria, rotten, stinking Samaria, he walks by, and he cares for the beaten man. The Samaritan was the neighbor to the man who had been attacked. So who is your neighbor? The one who looks like you, lives like you, votes like you, believes like you, worships like you, is liked by you, correct? Wrong. We don't find our neighbor by looking in a mirror. We find our neighbor by looking out the window. Your neighbor is the person God puts in front of you, the person who God puts on your mind. And according to Jesus, the more important question to ask is not who is my neighbor, but rather, am I being a neighbor? So what does it look like to be a neighbor? What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, the instruction to love your neighbor as yourself comes first in the Bible in the book of Leviticus. It's in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. If you are reading through Leviticus chapter 19, you're going to hit early in the chapter a long list of relational requirements. Here's what you do and do not do to other people. And then you get to verse 18 and it sums up that list in this way, love your neighbor as yourself. And so here's uh, some of the things in Leviticus 19 that make up that summary statement of loving your neighbor as yourself. It means this. It means you're going to care for the poor. You're not going to steal. You're not going to lie. You're going to be fair in business dealings. You're going to care for the deaf and care for the blind. You're going to deal justly with all people. You're going to avoid slander. You will not jeopardize the life of your neighbor. You will not harbor hatred against your brother. You will rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his good and for yours 
And in verse 18, you will not take revenge or bear a grudge against others. If you were to summarize this list in one nice, neat phrase, it would be love your neighbor as yourself. So God doesn't leave it to our imaginations as to what it will look like to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love is not proven by our affection in the heart. It's not proven by our intentions, but love is proven by action in the context of relationship. What, what we do is, is we locate love internally as almost only an emotion to the exclusion sometimes of external behavior. So external behavior towards another person can be quite horrific and then we would justify it by saying, but I love that person. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't hate them. I love them. But our actions would say otherwise. The Bible does not understand love as an internal affection separated from external actions. Love is not just a feeling. It is words and deeds. In fact, the very way we know what love is is that Jesus laid down his life for ours. He didn't just think fondly of you. He gave his life for you. And his death on the cross is the supreme display of love. That's how we know what love looks like. So then the question to us from Romans 13 becomes, do our actions and words towards non-believers show evidence of love or evidence of some other adverse emotion? Do your actions towards other people give evidence of love? It is possible that you might evaluate your life or, or someone else, a trusted Christian friend might evaluate your life and, and you might be surprised to find that, yeah, my actions are actions that are loving. I, I just haven't recognized it. I just, I just think that's what a, a good person does, a, a Jesus follower does. I'm, uh, you're, you're quick to help. You're reliable in a pinch. You speak blessings and compliments. You serve those in need. You care for a sick friend or a family member. These are just things in your mind that are just everyday routines and everyday care, but this is the stuff of love. So it's possible you might evaluate your life in light of what Paul's told us here and say, yeah, okay, I, I didn't recognize that before, but yeah, this is, this is love that I am acting on to the people around me. It's also possible that you might evaluate your life and you might think of yourself as a loving person, but you might struggle to come up with evidence. You may not be the loving person that you think you are. You have good intentions, but that's about it. Your words are biting. Your actions are indifferent or apathetic or worse, malicious. So this passage calls us not to just assume that we're loving people. Everyone assumes they're a good person. We have to evaluate our hearts and our lives in light of this text. This text also requires us to approach people in a different way. Rather than starting with an assessment of a person's value, like, is this person worthy of my loving actions. Let, let me categorize, check some boxes. But rather than assessing a person's value that way, we assess their value as given by God. And, and how does God value the people of 
this planet. He values them supremely. He sent His Son to die on the cross for their sin. Regardless of what boxes they check or what sort of filter you would run them through, God looks at those who bear His image, and He loves them, and He has proven His love for them. And so, God's people practice a stubborn love. Doesn't matter what a person's political party is, what their opinions on things are, what their yard signs are, or their flags, or their bumper stick. Doesn't matter any of these things. You know that Christ died for this one. You know all you need to know to love your neighbor. How do we relate to those outside the faith? We love our neighbors. But Paul gives us a second way, and he tells us this, we are to live a heavenly life today. Love your neighbor, and then live your heavenly life today. In verses 11 through 14, Paul uses some metaphorical language that serves as a time stamp on human history. In verse 11, he says, it is time to wake up. The night is nearly over and the day is near. What's he talking about here? Well, metaphorically speaking, he's saying we are on the, at the dawn of a new day. And this new day is the critical moment in salvation history before God himself comes to restore justice and peace to earth. Now, you might say, Cody, if Paul wrote this, 2,000 years ago, for people 2,000 years ago, and if they thought then that they were living in that critical salvation moment, well, hasn't that moment now passed? We're so far beyond that moment. Maybe Paul got it wrong. Maybe we've understood Jesus wrong. Maybe he's not coming back. Can we be so sure that this really is the critical salvation moment in history? And the answer is yes. Absolutely certain, regardless of the time between when this was written and it's now being read, every moment when we're dealing with the business of souls is the critical moment. There's no time that a soul's eternity is something to put on the back burner or to think less about or with less urgency. The critical salvation moment is this moment here with our hearts beating and our lungs pumping. Now is the salvation moment. Christians have always lived with a sense of the imminent return of Christ. And that isn't because we are sensationalists or fools, but we've simply always anticipated the greatest day. How could we not? I mean, we're like that kid who can't wait for Christmas morning or, or, or for his birthday party. Like that day when there's no more death or dying or pain, when love is perfect, when joy is complete, when glory is unfiltered, how could we not live every day with full throttle anticipation for the soon return of Jesus Christ? Oh, the church cannot be indifferent or apathetic or cool towards this thing. Now is the critical salvation moment. The night's almost over. The dawn is about to break, and that new day is coming. And so it, it calls us to live in a very specific, particular way as we pray, Come, Lord Jesus. How do we live? Well, at the end of verse 12, Paul says, let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So take off our night clothes, put on our day clothes. 
The dawn hasn't broken just yet, but in anticipation of it, we're going to live here in the dark as if the light is breaking across all of creation. So in this metaphor, deeds of darkness are contrasted with the armor of light. Rather than sinful actions, we are to arm ourselves for salvation and for righteousness. And now that we're dressed in our salvation army, verse 13, or excuse me, our salvation armor, verse 13 tells us to walk with decency. It includes this list of do nots, right? Do not uh, practice carousing, no drunkenness, no sexual impurity or promiscuity, no quarreling or jealousy. There's a way we are to live in anticipation of the coming of Christ among people who are otherwise content to live in the darkness. We live in the light of Christ for two reasons. First of all, we are His. You belong to Christ. So we're going to live that way. The second reason we're going to live this way is so that the people in our lives would see the light of the gospel and turn to Jesus Christ. They're content to be in the dark. They, don't, they can't imagine anything different until you bring gospel light to their lives. So God's people should live today, this very moment, in light of our future restoration. Our words and actions should not embrace the sin of our culture, but reflect the hope and glory and joy and holiness of that kingdom to come. This is end times language. And end times theology is a favorite subject matter for many believers. How can you tell if a person is really serious about end times theology? Can you tell by measuring the thickness of their study Bible? Or is it by the long list of possible candidates for the Antichrist that they carry? Or is it by their apocalypse-proof bunker in, in the lower uh, level of their home? Or is it by the labels that they carry? I'm a premillennial, half-calf, double-calf. How about yourself? What are you? How do we know someone's serious about the end times? Listen to what Paul says. The person who's serious about the return of Christ is going to be intensely focused on their personal holiness. Don't tell me you're praying, come Lord Jesus, and then live as if He's not ever going to return. But the person who's gripped by this promise that is soon to be fulfilled will live in the light of Christ here and now and influence those around them in the way that they live. When Christians are consumed with complaining about the state of the world, we're not doing any good. It's, it's right that we, we would look at things and be troubled, and, and there would, we would look at just how horrible sin is and its impact on the lives of people. It's right that would be troubling to us, but, but when you and I just stand around complaining about sin all the time, we are like lifeguards holding arms full of life preservers while all these people around us are drowning. And all we do is complain about all the people that are drowning. Well, there's another one. Look at, the, look at the way this one invented to drown. Unbelievable. I can't believe this. Brothers and sisters, we are on a mission from God to rescue people from their sin and an enemy that is devouring their souls. And who are we to stand and look at the world and say, why are you that way? Away with you. 
God has sent us to live in a particular way as light in the dark. And so here in Romans 13, Paul's not calling us to be superhero types of Christians, but just to live our ordinary lives in the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit. Things like loving your neighbor and living in the light of Christ, like these are not really profound, radical things. But we have no idea how powerful ordinary Christian living is, especially against the backdrop of so much sin and hurt. It may sound too simple, too idealistic, but how do you think we get to this particular moment if not for the impact of ordinary Christians who came before us? I want you to listen to what noted Christian historian Justo Gonzalez said about the spread of early Christianity. He said this, the enormous numerical growth of the church in its first centuries leads us to the question of what methods it used to achieve such growth. The answer may surprise some modern Christians, for the ancient church knew nothing of evangelistic services or revivals. On the contrary, in the early church, worship centered on communion, and only baptized Christians were admitted to its celebration. Therefore, evangelism did not take place in church services, but rather in kitchens, shops, and markets. The fact remains that most converts were made by anonymous Christians whose witness led others to their faith. So the gospel didn't come to you through superheroes, but through the superordinary faithfulness of merchants and slaves and exiles and prisoners and soldiers and parents and grandparents and friends and spouses, people who are anonymous to history but known to God, this beautiful army of the ordinary faithful who brought light into the dark and have set the path for us to follow as they followed Christ, so do we to live in this same way. With the soon coming of Christ, regular faithfulness is the stuff that changes lives. So we must live today in light of the soon return of Christ. So the question we ask at the out front is this, how should God's people relate to those who are outside the faith? Paul's answer is twofold. Love them and live a heavenly life today. Not popular answers. Familiar answers, not popular answers. There are Christian voices calling for different kinds of actions. It's easy to find voices that call for everything from withdrawal from society to war with society. Look, we can agree there is no doubt that our world is crumbling under the weight of sin and human depravity. The evidence is overwhelming. And we're in total agreement that the church must act. We must respond. But do we believe the Bible enough to follow Paul's instructions in Romans 13 to love our neighbors and to live like Christ among them? If you don't want to, there's a biblical example that you can claim as your own of a person called by God to show great compassion to a non-believing people, and this person was deeply troubled by that call and did just the opposite. Do you know who that person was? Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to Nineveh. 
this city that I am very concerned about, wrecked by misery, and give them my word. Nineveh, a city in the kingdom of Assyria, look, the Assyrians were not some quaint plains dwellers. They were a warring people, and their brutality was the stuff of legends, not just recorded in Scripture, but in, in volumes outside of Scripture by those who experienced it. Assyrian brutality was horrific. Even their own brutality against Israel, against Jonah's people, against God's people. And God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and give them my word. And Jonah says, I'd rather be anywhere else. And he takes off for Tarshish. And do you know who he's running away from on his way to Tarshish? He's not running away from Nineveh. He's running away from God. He fled the presence of God. He'd rather be in godless anywhere else than with God in Nineveh. Eventually, he gets to Nineveh, and he preaches the word of God. I think he does it in a half-hearted way. He preaches that judgment is coming, and that message has an immediate impact. And you might be familiar with the story there, Jonah chapter 3. Everyone in Nineveh, even the animals. I don't know how it happens. I just know that's what the Word tells us. And it's the least concerning thing uh, regarding believability in the story of Jonah. But here, all these people turn to God. For the record, I, I believe the book of Jonah, literal. We can talk about it later if you'd like. But all these people turn to God. Now, if you and I were writing the book of Jonah, that'd be the end of the story. That evangelistic success of chapter 3 would be the end of the story. But there's a chapter 4. And in chapter 4, you remember Jonah goes up on a hill overlooking the city of Nineveh. He's hoping that just maybe some little bit of heavenly napalm would fall on them and he could watch them burn because he despises these people. He's not happy at their repentance. He's infuriated by it. He's more upset that this weird vine that was giving him shade has withered up and died. He's so consumed with, with this vine that's dead, more so than he is with the souls of the people in the valley below. And so God asks Jonah a question, don't I have a right to care for these people? Jonah doesn't answer. It's left to the reader to answer the question in the way we live. Jonah's experience is imported here to Romans chapter 13. Same thing. We look at the non-believing world around us. Does God not have a right to care? And his care is not just about the morality of the world. His posture towards them is not just a posture of offense because they have done such evil against him and his church his posture is one of great compassion. And Jonah knew what happened when God's passion met the dark, the compassion meets the darkness of the human heart. The reason there's a chapter 4 in Jonah is because God is more concerned with the worker than he is the work. Do you have a heart like God for the non believing world around us? Are you compassionate the way God is? called us to be compassionate? Are you gracious the way God has been gracious to you? In a world of so much brokenness, you are sent into the fray armed with love and righteousness. I'm just going to tell you right now, it is not a fair fight. 
They do not stand a chance. With God the Holy Spirit on your side, I'm telling you, lives will be transformed through your ordinary faithfulness. Great things will happen because you bring the light of Christ into the darkness. And so where should you start? Here's my advice to you. Let's start with verse 10 this week as our prayer. Every day this week, let's incorporate Romans 13.10 into our prayer lives. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Let's turn that into a prayer. Lord, help me to love my neighbor and do no wrong to them. And then take action. Let your love go from the prayer closet to real life deeds. And so your love may be seen in something planned or something spontaneous, but it has to be something tangible. Write a card, make a phone call, invite someone on a walk, cook dinner, meet uh, a new person, take some apple cider donuts to your actual physical neighbors. Start with love and let's see amazing things happen. But friends, we must act quick. The night is nearly over. The day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to take just these last couple of minutes and talk to you directly. This may have been a fascinating morning for you to hear people who follow Jesus told from God's Word to love you. Sometimes when a person is not a follower of Jesus, they can see the church as antagonistic towards them. They may think, I'm an enemy to those people. Uh, you are certainly targeted by these people, but not as an enemy, but as someone who bears the image of God, carrying infinite value, great dignity, and worthy of love. And why is that? Well, that's because this is Christ's posture to you. He loves you, not in some intangible way. He proved His love by doing what was necessary to save you from the penalty of your sin. He loves you and was not content to leave you under the punishment of your sin. And so Jesus came to us. He is God who took on flesh, born of a virgin, lives a perfect holy life, and He alone is the one and only sacrifice for your sins. He died in your place for your sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead and promises eternal life to all those who turn to him in faith. And so, friend, it is time for you to wake up. It is time for you to throw off the deeds of darkness and to walk in the light of Christ. Now is the critical salvation moment. And you are loved and you are called and your rescue awaits when you turn to Jesus today. Let's pray together. Father, we are inundated by rage and division. And, and we confess that we have participated in such thinking. We have vilified the non-believing world and the result has been that, that we have justified being unloving and even living lives steeped in sin. Father, forgive us. Renew our minds so that we think like you about the people we live around. Help us to love much just as we have been loved. And help us to live today in light of eternity so that your kingdom would come
and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.